Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Total Recall, the new Len Wiseman movie based on a Philip K. Dick short story. Here with me in the Slate Studios is Chris Wade. Hey, Chris. Uh, am I really Chris Wade, or am I actually Hauser, the <laughs> secret agent inside of me? Uh, it's a great to be here, Dana. Chris, you are a Slate V producer, and you're also the producer of the Slate Spoiler Specials, and you also specifically asked to come along and spoil this movie with me because you're a big sci-fi fan and a big Total Recall fan. Yeah, I'm a fan of all of Verhoeven's sci-fi works. A few months ago, when they announced the Starship Troopers uh, remake, I wrote a little piece for Browbeat about why all of Verhoeven's sci-fi movies are particularly relevant these days. Which you and can... why is that? Because of their sort of re- relevance to virtual reality? A yeah, lot of them are I about... think that a lo- all three of them are kind of weirdly prescient and forward-looking to a lot of ways that people interact with technology and memory. The three that are being remade, you mean? This yeah. one, Robocop, and, uh, and Starship Troopers. Yeah, and it's also just interesting that Verhoeven kind of... I thought it was interesting that Verhoeven's like, aesthetic weirdly hit a cultural moment where 2012, the Total Recall remake is coming out. 2013, the RoboCop remake is coming out. And if all goes according to plan, 2014, the Super Troopers remake, uh, or Starship Troopers remake, comes out. Um, so I just think that it's kind of, he has a kind of interesting, prescient, snarky take. All the stuff in Starship Troopers about the, where it's like framed by that YouTube video concept, the would you like to know more, where you're constantly watching these. You're right. Well, Starship Troopers, I haven't rewatched since, mm, I've seen it since it came out, but not in a while. And that movie just blew me away. Okay, we can't even get yeah. off into Starship Troopers because I think that is Verhoeven's finest work. And we're not even here to talk about Verhoeven, although I'm sure <laughs> we will reference him at some point. We're here to talk about Len Wiseman's remake. Len Wiseman is the director of the Underworld movies, mm-hmm. which can you tell me about them? Because I've never seen an Underworld movie. Uh, they're kind of, they were kind of a little in front of the where wolves and vampires thing that probably they the first one probably came out in like 2005 but it's basically kate beckinsale is a badass unstoppable killing machine of a vampire uh fighting a war against. but she's not an occult figure herself she's a person no she is a vampire she's part of the vampire clan and she's fighting a war against the lichens or the werewolves who have traditionally been enemies with the vampires even as she finds herself falling in love with one and you like those movies. They're okay. Yeah, they're pretty okay. They are um, they were kind of a great entry into that concept before it got way, way overplayed. Like, that was probably the first vampires versus werewolves action flick I can remember seeing. Um, I'm sure there are more before that, but that was one of the big Hollywood things. And it was kind of, you know, it was like a $30, 40000000 million movie when it came out. Not the hugest, like, blockbuster thing, but, you know, a really good passable action movie, much like this one. Yeah, Len Wiseman is also married to Kate Beckinsale in, in real true. life, which I think figures into the fact that he, to me, vastly overestimates how much we <laughs> care about Kate Beckinsale's character, but we will get there. So the basic premise of Total Recall, which is based on this Philip K. Dick short story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Like all Philip K. Dick stories, it has an amazing title that doesn't really work as a movie title because it's too long and too <laughs> yeah. conceptual, like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right, mm-hmm. for Blade Runner. Um, so the, the basic premise of this story, although it's very, very short, is probably like less than 10 pages long, the story, but it's so cinematic. I can completely see why people would want to return to it again and mm-hmm. again to make movies. Do you want to take us through the kind of Mobius strip logic of the story? Yeah, like you said, it's a uh, it's just a really great movie premise that you can set up uh, the logline for the entire story in a sentence, which is basically a 
a guy who has these insistent dreams of another reality goes to a service that offers to implant memories in him. And as soon as the needle goes in his arm or the visor goes over his head to theoretically start the memory implant, everything seems to go awry and cops bust in and he's basically launched on this extended chase where he realizes that he's secretly a super agent or secret agent who's had his memory wiped. But then there's this whole interplay of is this a crazy truth that's been triggered by him messing with his brain through recall or is it all actually the memory he paid to have implanted in him? Right. Since this is the thing that he asked to do. Well, in the original Verhoeven, he asks to go to Mars. They mm-hmm. take out the Mars angle in this, which we'll talk about. And but, but he essentially wants to take sort of a virtual vacation, right, and pretend to be a super agent spy. And so we don't know throughout the movie whether he is a guy on a table just writhing in the grips of a crazy delusion or whether, in fact, he was a secret agent and has now accidentally triggered that memory. And I, I think especially the, the Verhoeven 1990 version really walks the line and is careful at every moment to let both realities possibly be true. I, th- I think I get the impression that this movie is a little bit less interested in that, you know, in, in sort of reversing the Mobius strip over and over again. Yeah, and I do think that that is one of the most fascinating parts of the original recall, in that it's, yeah, it toes that line very carefully, and when the movie ends, you know, you can still find de- people debating, uh, like, what is it real? Did he actually go to Mars, or is he stuck in his schizoid embolism? Right. Yeah, a phrase that, as you as you observed, sadly dropped out, the, the, the sort of pseudo-medical phrase, schizoid embolism, for what happens to him mm-hmm. on the implant table, it has disappeared, probably because of its completely non-medical <laughs> absurdity, but I missed it. Yeah, we've kind of uh, wised up as a culture, but yeah, it's just one of those great science fiction mumbo jumbo phrases that just sounds so great but is replaced in this movie by you know paranoid delusional psychosis or you know something that sounds more realistic similarly the idea of mars or the destination of mars as the place that he dreams of and 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 tries to go back to in his in his bought memory has dropped out of this one and Mm -hmm. i mean i assume that that's just because now we know enough about the solar system and i don't know that i think science fiction has gotten kind of sophisticated and pseudoscientific enough that we wouldn't really buy this whole story about going to mars and and the oxygenless atmosphere of mars and living inside a dome and all the things that happened in the first one and so instead what wiseman has done essentially is make earth into the uninhabitable planet. So there's also kind of an eco-angle in this version where chemical warfare has made the Earth completely uninhabitable, except for some reason for Great Britain and Australia. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And so there's this colonial thing set up. This is all, by the way, there's a little exposition dump at the beginning, right? There's just words printed on the screen telling us this. So this is kind of a cool premise, actually. So... um, so it's a colonial structure. The United Federation of Great Britain or whatever they call it is, is like the fancy rich colonies. And then Australia, right, the penal colony mm-hmm. continent is, is where all the workers live. And the only means of transportation on Earth, I would have loved a little featurette on the construction <laughs> of this in the future, is this thing called the fall that is essentially – a, a tunnel drilled through the core of the earth. So just like a kid tries to dig a hole to China, you can basically get onto this transport, drop through the entire earth in 17 minutes and end up in whichever one you want to go to, the colony or, or, or the great United Federation of Great Britain. Which, yeah, which as was actually a really cool uh, little sci-fi device, this uh, center of the earth elevator. And one of the, I think, continuously coolest action-y moments is the idea is when the fall... El- ship hits the core of the earth there's a moment of zero gravity when you're like directly in the center 
um, which is used a few times to, I think, pretty decent effect. Yeah, they set that up nicely at the beginning, that there's this moment that everything starts floating and you have to hang on to your keys and stuff like that. And then, of course, that's used for a really Matrix-style kind of gravity-free yeah. action sequence late in the movie. I'm realizing now that I missed this opening uh, text-based narration, I think. I think I sat down in the theater. Um, you and your popcorn. Yeah, just as the second after it, it ended, and I kind of am glad I didn't because I kind of liked having to figure everything out about this world instead of it all just being told to me. I, I was trying to figure of... out how they would have explained the fall. Otherwise, there would have had to be some really dumb moment of character exposition. Yeah. So even though it's a little clumsy at the end having to read all that stuff, I mean, the fall kind of explains itself, and it is a neat, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a really cool effect, and just kind of the idea of dropping through the earth. I wish it had been taken a little bit longer. I think it's kind of unrealistic mm-hmm. that you could make it through the whole planet in 17 minutes. <laughs> um yeah, and I think that it plays into one of the strongest things that this movie has going for it, which is the design element. Where uh... Yeah, let's talk about the look of it, because that's something that's really different and that I think it, it, it gets right. It's not the most original design, but it's really, really cool looking, the world that they've Yeah, and we were of. kind of talking yesterday that it, it cobbles together from a lot of different sources, sci-fi movie sources, this kind of cool, specific dystopian world of half-floating skyscrapers above a kind of under um, city that's this great nonsensical mix of cultures and languages and in a very Blade Runner kind of yeah, way yeah it's, right? it's very Blade Runnery everything like you'll see a neon sign in Cyrillic characters but it's spelling out like a Japanese word and yeah. this is of course what the what the colony looks like right yeah, because exactly. it's sort of it's it's like the, the, the gritty place so that it looks really great there I agree the, the layers everything's wet constantly and it makes for some good chases because these yeah. buildings all are sort of these modular cubes like cropping mm-hmm. out over the, the water so people can jump from, from cube to cube and there's some fun chases in, in that landscape yeah. So after the first act of the movie where um, Quaid – Played by Colin Farrell. Quaid, played by Colin Farrell, originally Arnold Schwarzenegger, goes and decides that he wants to get this memory implanted uh, and things begin going awry. That's where the movies start to kind of sig- – start to significantly diverge. Um, what starts off at first is a massive chase sequence in which Quaid runs home and realizes his wife – played by Kate, Kate Beckinsale, Beckinsale. Uh, who was the awesomely 80s workout ensemble uh, garbed Sharon Stone in the original, reveals herself to be not his wife, but in fact a agent sent in to guard him as his memory has been wiped and, po- wiped and poses his wife. And something that I love in both movies is this is happens really early on in the story, yeah. right? And, and essentially the rhythm is established really early on. Like this is going to be all action all the way through mm-hmm. and these reversals are going to keep on happening. So yeah. you know that you, you can't just be satisfied with knowing that his wife is in fact this agent who's trying to kill him. And in fact, pretty pretty soon after that in the movie, we see Kate Beckinsale appear again in the guise of the loving wife saying, honey, come out of this delusion, right? Yeah, so exactly. she's, she's part of the sowing of that doubt. Which is one of the strongest things that this story has going for it is that from the from its very premise you have to accept that nothing in the story can be trusted as true and that there's literally no way to see who is right and who is wrong if you accept the basic premise behind it so he goes on the run she tries to kill him they fight forever for literally the entire rest of the movie there it's it's all just breaks between a Kate Beckinsale trying to kill Colin Farrell. And here comes my, this is my first big conceptual problem with, with this movie, and it does have to do with the overuse of Kate Beckinsale, not just because I find her kind of a boring actress, although she's good in the action scenes. I mean, she's yeah. probably not doing her own stunts, but she knows martial arts well enough that she can be yeah. blended with a stunt double really well. But 
what's her character's motivation exactly? I mean, there's this line that she says early on in, that, in the very first scene where it's revealed that she's, in fact, been hired to pose as his wife and she's only known him for six weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all a memory implant, their whole life together. And uh, as he's freaking out, she says, ah, I just work here, right? Which mm-hmm. is exactly what Sharon Stone says in the original. It's a great line. Yeah. And, and Sharon Stone kind of sticks to that in the original. She just kind of shows up when she's needed by the story and is yeah. essentially employed by Cohagen, the bad guy who's trying to get him. But Kate Beckinsale in this really decides, she devotes the entire movie to fiercely chasing after him and later after the, the girl, Jessica Biel, right, that, mm-hmm. that he hooks up with in his travels. Melina. Melina. And so... I guess I just don't I don't know what Kate Beckinsale's investment is and I wanted to know at some point I thought we were going to get some kind of a backstory scene of like oh but maybe she really is kind of in love with him you mm-hmm. know or maybe it's not a personal motivation maybe she's just a really fierce you know um, I don't know maybe she's, she's trying to impress her boss well, now that but I don't know why she wants in every single moment rather than just sicking some of her minions on him to chase after him herself well now that you're arguing this I feel like I could I feel like it could be argued that there's a little subtext of her being uh, insulted that he's actually her match as a secret agent, despite him being this lame factory worker right. in their marriage life. It's like when his uh, secret agent, Con Farrell's secret agent, this is unlocked, he's her equal. Right. Her being kind of in competition with that. I think you could argue that, but it's not very explicitly. Yeah, I wish given. that had been built up. I mean, I guess there is a moment that she says, oh, you were always the favorite at the Academy or yeah, something, something like that. that. But if it is some kind of professional competitiveness, like that would have been a fun mm-hmm. angle to pursue. Instead, I feel like she just kind of became the faceless assassin <laughs> who was stalking him constantly. Yeah. It literally is relentless Kate Beckinsale hunting. It's every five minutes he turns a corner and she's behind him <laughs> with a gun. You're right. It does become kind of comical. Um, so after that, through a uh, series of chances kind of realizes more about his identity, including... Well, he also keeps stumbling on taped messages from his former self, which is something that happens in the Verhoeven version as well. So that's kind of a cool Mm -hmm. idea. And there's all kinds of, you know, futuristic technology where you sort of have a phone inside your hand implanted in your hand and you have a glowing palm of your hand. And he keeps getting these messages from his former self or other self who's named Hauser, the secret agent guy. And... And Hauser is sort of sending him on this wild goose chase, go here, go there, find the key. He doesn't tell him what the key is, and he has to keep moving through the city to find clue after clue. And uh, the phone thing is actually where the first, I think, of many kind of explicit callbacks to kind of the great set pieces of the first Total Recall happens. Oh, right, because it's like the nose mo- the nose scene, right? Yeah, where he has to pull that where Schwarzenegger has to pull that ludicrously large tracking device out from inside <laughs> his nose. It's like the size of like a small plum that he has to pull out of his nasal cavity. Uh, And in this one, it's kind of replaced by Farrell taking the phone thing out of his hand, which is a lot more gruesome and less comical. I thought it was kind of less gruesome in a way. I mean, (laughs) Verhoeven just really doesn't, he really pulls out all the stops when it comes to, you know, violent, (laughs) gross exploitation. Maybe less grotesque in the uh, classical sense of the word than the deformed nose face thing that uh, Schwarzenegger has on. Speaking of callbacks to the original, I missed the three-breasted woman in this. The same way you missed the exposition at the beginning, I was idiotically reaching for my notebook to write mm-hmm. down a line someone had just said. Then yeah. I heard this tittering throughout the theater and and realized that that famous moment of the prostitute, the mutant prostitute with three breasts had, had briefly had its moment on scene. So you have to tell me yeah. what that was like. Uh, it's approximately one second of footage in the movie. Um... It looks fine. It's like, <laughs> but it's full frontal three-breasted nudity. Uh, yeah, full frontal three-breasted nudity. Um, it's 
there. But once again, the pulp sleaze of the original is yeah. kind of kind of gone. I yeah. mean, this in general, though, there's some moments of wit. I would say that this is a darker version in general and has more that sleek, dark, you know, yeah. post millennial tone. It's it's nowhere near as campy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like the the phrase pulp sleaze for that because it does, the original plays as as I've mentioned before. I think kind of this perfect intersection of actual great science fiction and kind of hilarious camp at the same time, which is exemplified in scenes like the fat lady disguise that Schwarzenegger dons where he's wearing this mechanical mask disguising him as this giant fat woman that begins to malfunction and he kind of horrifically peels it off and reveals himself to be Schwarzenegger holding, you know, like an assault rifle or something. Um, And it's like that combination of that just being hilarious to see that fat lady mask on reveal Schwarzenegger behind it and also just be like a cool well executed sci-fi effect and a you know a great disguise to fit the story yeah there's a little callback to that in this movie and it really I mean if you hadn't seen the original this scene would basically be completely boring right which is that Colin Farrell's Quaid also dons a mask this time it's of like a young Asian guy but there's a person right in front of him on the line they're going through customs in this scene as they were in the original who looks exactly like the fat lady in the old movie so you sort of it's a fake out you think it's going to be her everybody in the the theater who was familiar with the original thought was keeping their eyes on this fat lady and Wiseman directs you at it but then in the background. But then I thought that the the, the, the head reveal when he took off the young Asian guy's head was going to be some really horrifically gross thing because now we have the digital technology. Yeah. Right? Verhoeven was doing it all with puppets basically. Yeah. There was barely any CGI in that movie. And by the same token as long as we're hopping around the movie spoiling various mm-hmm. things, what about the lack of a quato? Right? Yeah. The, the fetus villain. Okay, we should describe to those who haven't seen or don't remember the original Total Recall. Um, that when he finally penetrates to the, the rebel leader, right? The guy yeah. who's trying to overthrow these uh, these colonial oppressors, right? They find the, yeah, this guy uh, who you think is going to be the leader himself who unbuttons his shirt to reveal a... Like a mutant tiny, fetus Yeah, dwarf. growing out of his abdomen. Um, who's the actual rebel leader, yeah, right? Yeah, Kuatu, who's psychic and reveals stuff about Quaid Hauser's psyche that he doesn't know before. I really thought that was a huge dropped ball. Not to, yeah. I mean, maybe you don't want to recreate that exact scene, but you could do something so much cooler or so much weirder. You know, mm-hmm. he could, I don't know, he could have like a microscopic earworm that's the rebel leader. Like, you could do anything now. Yeah, and that scene felt like really wasted where Hauser eventually, through various encoded messages and fake out scenes makes his way to the rebel leader the leader in the colonies who's actually not in the colonies is outside of london in their weird war uh, gas torn fog area um who's played by bill nye um and they have this very like stilted felt like stoned in your freshman dorm scene about like the nature of reality and memory. Yeah, that's the closest that the movie comes to the kind of Lawrence Fishburne in the Matrix yeah. sort of moment. Because there's also Matrix elements to this movie for sure, right? Yeah. But there's but there isn't any Larry Fishburne, there isn't any kind of stoner dude in a long black coat yeah. who comes and explains it all. And that's sort of the closest we come. And it would have been worth the, 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 the leaden exposition of that scene if Bill Nye had then unbuttoned his coat and revealed some incredibly weird gross growth that was in fact his master. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that never happened. But then and instead, uh, Brian Cranston playing Cohegan, the officious villain of the of the movie, just shows up and shoots him. Kind of an anticlimactic scene that segues into the end of the movie, which involves basically a showdown between uh, Colin Farrell and Brian Cranston with Kate Beckinsale, of course, buzzing yeah. around at all times, and, like, uh, yeah, in, it, in various hovercrafts. 
And Jessica Biel also in the background helping out slash getting captured. God, Jessica Biel so boring that I forgot she was even in this movie. Okay, I, actually, I want to talk about the performances and the casting before we wrap, but let's first take a break for a word from our sponsor. Great. So the spoiler special, as ever, is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the web. They have more than 100,000 audiobooks you can listen to on any device, including whatever you're listening to us on right now. And they have a good deal right now for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial of the service and one free audiobook if you sign up at this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So as always, we try to recommend something that's related to the topic of the day. So I entered Philip K. Dick's name into into Audible, the science fiction writer who wrote this story, also the story that Minority Report is based on. Also the story that Blade, Blade Runner, Runner is based, based on. on. Yeah. And uh, Richard Linklater made a Scanner Darkly, one of his novels, into a film. He's a very cinematic author in many mm-hmm. ways, a very noir kind of style and really, really great science fiction ideas. He also had a really interesting and sad life and was essentially mentally ill. And I think a lot of these stories about, you know, is this real, is it not, these kind of epistemological riddles that he specializes in had a lot to do with his lived experience. So there's a bunch both by and about Philip K. Dick on Audible. You can, And there's some really good people reading it, too. For example, Paul Giamatti reading a Scanner Darkly, the Philip K. Dick novel. And uh, although I'm sitting here raving about Philip K. Dick. I haven't actually read that much by him, but one thing I have read is this novel, Scanner Darkly, and it's fantastic. Such a great book, and I would love to hear it in Paul Giamatti's voice. Um, Okay, so you can find all of those on audible.com, and don't forget to use this code, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. So there were a couple more things that you wanted to spoil, just little moments, little twists in the movie. There's so many, we can't go through them all. Mm-hmm. But, for example, one, one twist that stood out for you and sort of showed how this movie kind of doesn't do what it's trying to do as well as the 1990 original. Yeah, and as we mentioned before, this, it seems like this movie is not as interested in the kind of epistemological questions that are at the center of this, which is a scene in which Colin Farrell is held up with Jessica Biel, who he's trying to escape with, um, in a hotel lobby or lobby of something, and he's surrounded by cops. And his buddy from his previous life as a welder comes in and says, "Don't shoot, man. Recall sent me in. I, you I'm are a not, chemical implant yeah, in your brain I'm right a now. Chemical implant in your brain. This is all a dream. You're on the table in recall. This is the memory that you had imp- asked to have implanted, and you're fighting it. And you need to shoot Jessica Biel right. in order to, to choose reality. To choose reality and wake up from this dream." And it's kind of this tense standoff moment of who's going to get shot, who's going to get shot, what is he going to choose, is he going to believe his friend, is he going to believe the reality that he's perceiving around him. And he ends up shooting his old friend and going with Jessica Biel for another 40 minutes of being chased by Kate Beckinsale. And it wasn't as mentally tense because in the original there's that great moment that you reminded me of where instead of a friend from a past life, it's kind of this, to use more Matrix metaphors, an architect-like person who's sent in to tell him that he's having this schizoid embolism Schwarzenegger that he's having this schizoid embolism and that he needs to shoot his rebel accomplice in order to wake up and the standoff moment is resolved by Schwarzenegger aiming the gun at the official the recall official being sent in and who says I don't care I'm not real this is a dream right go ahead and shoot me but then Schwarzenegger notices a single bead of sweat dropping down this guy's forehead, realizes that he's bluffing, and shoots him and continues with the rest of the mission. And it's like kind of that great, in this original movie that's so campy and so over the top in a lot of ways, that like moment that brings it down to that great sci-fi uh, DNA where it's like actually actually making the main character's ask real questions about the reality they perceive and the reality they're experiencing, that this 
remake is less interested in and more in favor of. Right, and the, the, the tell is kind of shifted in this scene. There yeah. is also a moment where, because of a bodily fluid, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> the hero decides who to shoot. But what the bodily fluid is is a tear rolling out of Jessica Biel's eye mm-hmm. because he thinks, okay, I am going to choose reality. I'm going to believe my old buddy from the, the plant, yeah. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot the Jessica Biel character. And then as he does, there's a single tear that rolls out of her eye. And then he turns and shoots the friend. But if she were some sort of hologram implant who had been designed to trick him, they obviously would have equipped her with tears to make yeah, exactly. her yet more... Yet more you know, ador- adorable and pleasing. So it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, which is why this movie seems to end in a lot less of an ambiguous way. And I still feel like in the original Recall, you could go back and ask, "Well, is he still dreaming? Is it a reality?" As the oxygen sweeps back over Mars, and he's looking out to that sun that kind of explodes in light as the movie ends. Like, is that a dream, or is that him embracing his schizoid embolism? I'm going to say that as many times as I can. <laughs> um, Whereas this movie kind of ends with Brian Cranston trying to invade the colonies with his robot army. Oh, also there's a plot about a robot army in this. Who look exactly like the stormtroopers from Star yeah, Wars, basically. Exactly. Uh, Brian Cranston's going to take this army and invade the colonies for his own political gain. There yeah, are- Brian Cranston and the robot army is just it's just a really boring part of the movie, essentially. Yeah. And I, I mean, I say that with all love for Brian Cranston, but it, it really, really did seem like, oh, we've got to up the scale. We've got to make it bigger than the mm-hmm. original. you know. And in fact, bringing air to Mars is so much more of a humanitarian yeah, gesture. So they are going to take the fall elevator to the colonies. They're fighting on top of it, uh, Cranston and Farrell. Uh, Farrell blows everything up, and that's kind of how it ends. I do like fighting on top of the fall ele- elevator because you know at that point somebody is ending up at the core of the earth, yeah, right? Exactly. This is a serious elevator shaft fall for, um, for the villain. Yeah, what you think is Kate Beckinsale as she's falling down, but she manages to escape and try to kill Hauser <laughs> one more time. <laughs> um... I, if we're going to move on to the performances, I think I'd like to start with Cranston, just because it's as somebody who's like consummately following Breaking Bad, it is at this point just weird to see him outside of that character since he inhabits it so much, like so completely when you're watching the series. It almost feels like watching Walter White like cameo in something else as like a slightly, at this point, more lighthearted. It's villain. strange how a TV role, a great TV role, will do that to an actor like yeah. Gandolfini, right? He's just yeah. permanently Tony Soprano. He cannot escape. Exactly. Um, although I will say I admire Weissman for continuing uh, Brian Cranston's so far trope of being the victim of knife violence in his major motion pictures, <laughs> uh, whether it's his gruesome forced suicide in Drive or just being stabbed by with his own knife by Farrell in this movie. Um, I, I look forward to hopefully many more knife, <laughs> violent Cranston, knife ends Cranston, Cranston stabbings. <laughs> what about the girls? What did you think of Jessica Biel and Kate Beckinsale? And did it bother you that they're such similar types? Yes, there were definitely moments where, especially in a movie that's going to play with you not realizing or maybe not knowing who is who and who is being who, they look almost exactly the same. It's like there's a part where he's waking up after... Oh, that's like right. One of them is digitally disguised as the other, but you think, why even bother with the disguise? You're both lissom, brunette, yeah. willowy, whatever. Um, Colin Farrell, totally serviceable action star. And actually somewhat more believable as an everyman than Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger, although so much of the joy of the original comes from the total absurdity that just your everyday working schmo would look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, I think one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's greatest credits to himself as an actor is being able to convince America 
that he could play an everyman. Oh, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, 300-pound slab of muscle <laughs> Austrian man, totally an insurance adjuster. Well, and he has this way. It's a very fun role to play. I'm sure this Douglas Quaid role because you get to be really badass. You get to wipe wipe out huge quantities of villains. There's a high body count in both movies. Not quite as visibly high body count, especially of civilians in yeah. this as there were in the Verhoeven. But the same kind of idea. Just yeah. people people falling right and left. But at the same time, the hero has this kind of innocence because yeah. he sort of didn't ask to be put there. Right? He's amazed at his own abilities. He's he suddenly con- became this super agent. Constantly surprised by everything around him. And I think that that's played up a little bit more, you know, more playfully mm-hmm. in the Verhoeven. But Colin Farrell carries it off okay. I mean, in general, I think. Our Aren't we saying this is a perfectly serviceable science fiction summer action movie for what it is? I think the bottom line is, yeah, that's exactly how I would say it. It's, you know, it's going to, if you're a fan of the original, it's going to hit a few pleasure points in the callbacks. It's definitely, you know, not going to live up to the same transcendental greatness, I think, as the first one. But, you know, it, it, it plays with what you might, with what you expect, and it's going to reward it in a few ways. And other than that, you know, it's a, well-designed, well-executed. Weissman does great action scenes. Uh, people are getting beat up. There's good sci-fi technology elements. It's great. Yeah, I, think I, would, I, would, I would recommend it with that mild reservation that, you know, if you're looking for either Philip K. Dick or Paul Verhoeven, you're not going to find that. But you're going to find somebody else's reading of a really, really cool mm-hmm. science fiction premise. Uh, All right, well, Chris, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank and you for having me. Next time we've got a, a sci-fi favorite of yours, please come in and spoil again. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Okay, our producer is you, Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.